Greetings, dear listeners. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation, as well as other subscriber-only benefits. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. relatively cool person who can just kind of like hang with us I'm, I'm happy to talk yeah yeah you seem like that from, <laughs> can you hang can you hang <laughs> from your i hope so persona. i mean i guess you'll be the judge yeah. yeah well you know maybe i'll just start with a, a disclaimer or concern or two one is that i i tend to get intimidated by people with three names so the fact that your name is tyler austin harper fills me with a bit of trepidation it means that you are there's something about the three name thing it's just like whoa this person has gravitas they are a literary figure they will wait Shadi, do you do you not have a middle name i don't technically have one so in arab culture usually the middle name is just your father's name so i guess that is my middle name But it's not like a special name that we're given at birth usually. Mm -hmm. So I've always found the idea of having multiple names to be kind of foreign, if you will. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe just um, another disclaimer that you are a professor of environmental studies at Bates College. The environment is an interesting topic. You know, some sadly and and perhaps. Not unfairly, we've been criticized here at Wisdom of Crowds for not taking the environment seriously and not taking climate change seriously. And I think that that criticism will probably continue because I don't think we're going to talk about the environment much, even though you're an expert on it. But who knows? Maybe it'll come up. So <laughs> I'm, um, I'm uh, my PhD is in literature. I'm not, you know, I, I'm in an environmental studies department. I think how much I'm an expert on the environment is very much up to date. I don't do any like <laughs> Wait, science. So, so tell us how how that happened. Actually, how did you yeah. how did you get into the environment? And also, I want to say to the multiple names theory, I actually surprisingly kind of agree with Shadi on this. Although I feel like what you're going to have to do in like a couple of years is just start going by like T Austin Harper or like T A Harper. And that's like the real double initial. Yeah. 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 That's the power move for sure. A hundred percent. That's what PT Anderson does. He used to be, uh, well, I guess he's called the, the famous director, Paul Thomas Anderson, but it's even like more badass when it's just like P.T. Anderson. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My PhD is in comparative literature, and I um, wrote a dissertation about the history of Western ideas of hum- about human extinction and sort of how our thinking about the end of the world changed over time, largely in response to new scientific discoveries. So, you know, the discovery of evolution, thermodynamics, etc. Um, and a lot of that dovetails with environmental stuff, because the story of how our ideas about human extin- extinction has changed is also a story about how, you know, our conception of nature has changed as something, you know, hostile that could snuff 
us out, but also is something mm-hmm. that we're trying to increasingly bring under our control. Um, so that was kind of my entry point into environmental studies. The department I teach in um, is interdisciplinary. So I'm the sort of designated uh, humanities person. So I teach um, lit and film and do a little philosophy and I teach a history of science course, which is a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, So you do everything basically. Yeah, this sounds yeah. like the humanities dream actually, which is increasingly awesome. rare, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the like a great thing is I'm, you know, right now the only humanities person. So I have a little fiefdom, you know, so there's like no one who I'm competing with to do. If I want to do a film course, I can just do a film course, you know? Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been great. Would great. you say that mm. academia is um, going extinct? That's Would a really you say good question. there's extinction crisis in your field? Actually, when I, I, uh, I'm lucky to be on the tenure track. And when I got my job, I uh, graduated my PhD program with a job, which is increasingly rare. And um, when I did my dissertation defense, one of my advisors said, this is like, you know, you're going off to a job. This is like watching the last dinosaur being born, born you know? Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely academia is certainly in crisis. It's less true of schools with more money. It's very true of um, public schools. Um, and, you know, I think uh, even elite universities are having a, a hard time in various ways. And then the humanities have their own kind of squeeze that's being put on them for sure. So before we dive into polyamory, so dear listeners, prepare yourselves. Just, a you know, you you relay a kind of funny story a series of funny stories in one of your Atlantic essays that when you you encounter an, a kind of um, adjunct professor who is in a difficult situation in terms of her own job because she is an adjunct professor, and you sheepishly tell her, if I recall, that you're a tenure that you're tenure track, and she still feels kind of sorry for you yeah, yeah. because because you're black. Yeah, yeah. And it's like such a, it's such an incredible thing that someone can be that patronizing to you to be like, well, oh, um, you know, sorry, BIPOC person. And, and I think that's a that's the acronym she used. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. BIPOC f- for the uninitiated stands for something like black indigenous person of color. Yep. Tell us maybe a little bit about that um, encounter and how that made you feel. Yeah, you know, I mean, she was telling me this story. I was at a conference and she was, you know, talking about her own kind of rough time. Like many people, the job market is a mess in academia. And she's sort of telling me about her trials and, you know, she's adjuncted and kind of bounced around different places. Um, and then she asked if, you know, what my job was like and if I was on the tenure track. And I said I was. Um, and at a certain point, she's like, I shouldn't be complaining to you about this. Like, I know how hard it is to be BIPOC in the academy or something like that. It was like, you know, it was like, even though she like I have like a, a cushy gig you know like everything is going great and she's had this really hard time she still was kind of like programmed to think that like somehow like being black is inherently the worst thing that could happen to you and so like (laughs) any other advantages that might be stacked up in your favor must you know like outweigh be outweighed by that you know and so but i i mean i wasn't um I guess I was offended in the abstract, but I wasn't offended by her because like she was just doing what she has been acculturated to do. I mean, academia is very much like this. Like I, I, you know, she was just doing what she thought was right, which was to acknowledge her privilege, to like recognize that I might have a different kind of experience in academia based on my race, whatever. Um, And so I didn't see it as like her being personally racist or condescending. I saw it as her just like, this is like how you're supposed to think about race. And this is how, if you're an academic, you're acculturated to think about it. Um, 
so I just like the whole thing was just weird mostly you know I wasn't angry I was like you know this is uh how people are increasingly programmed to to think you know um, but is there something like like vaguely like vaguely racist or racist adjacent if someone assumes that being black is like the worst thing Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I definitely think it's racist, to be clear. I just, like, don't think... (laughs) I wasn't offended by her personally, because, like, she's just miming the thing you're... Like, she's been trained to do, and a lot of academics think like this, right? That, like, being black or being a minority is, like, a hardship upon all other hardships, and that, like, that outweighs class in important ways, so that even though, like, I had job security and, you know, funds for my research and reasonable class size and and all these other materials material conditions that had been met in her same, you know, material needs were not being met that like the race piece was the overriding concern. And that's how a lot of people think. And so like, I, it was definitely the sentiment was racist. Um, but I wasn't offended because she was just, you know, a vector for the kind of logic that I think prevails in academia. And that logic is racist, but it like, I wasn't upset at her personally. I was mostly upset at like whatever hellish HR department, you know, she had like absorbed these ideas from. I mean, she was, she was trying to be nice, right? She was trying to be nice. Trying to acknowledge your struggle and be there for you in, in some strange way. Yeah. She's trying to be progressive. Yeah. Uh, underline that she was she was trying to be progressive which in practice ended up being something perhaps entirely different um but what you're saying about her sort of just being acculturated to this this idea that you know x being black for instance or being bipoc in academia is the worst thing that could happen to you that you need sympathy for or that that is the appropriate thing to say is this weird acculturation that is not necessarily accurate to anything in lived experience or real yeah, life yeah. seems to be a thread through a number of your pieces and particularly through the piece that I was just so fascinated by, um, your polyamory piece. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is was... so good. <laughs> it oh, is so delightful. good. We're going to include a link in the show notes, of course, and I would highly recommend that everyone who reads reads this yeah. piece and just savors it it's it's like it's like a work of art almost it's called polyamory the ruling class's latest fad uh and it's in the atlantic um it came out i guess a couple weeks ago yeah early February. around the yeah which is i think around the same time that the book that it that is kind of at the center of of the critique came out and that is molly roden winter's memoir more a memoir of an open marriage. Um, <laughs> I have to say that I also, I got a review copy of of this memoir. Uh, it came to my house and I was like, oh God, of course, it's a memoir about open marriage from a Park Slope mom. Like what else uh, would she be doing except being in an open and marriage? And she's sure. white. <laughs> Shadi, please, you're being racist. <laughs> yeah, I'm really offended. <laughs> Come on. Um, it infuriated me so much. Like, I read the books, I thought I'd write about it, and just, like, every page I flipped through, I was like, I hate this. Like, I I hate this. I I don't know her. I can't say that I hate her. But yeah. I was just like, you seem <laughs> very wretched in certain ways. Um, and at the end of reading the book, I was like, I don't, like, I don't want to spend a minute more with this. I'm not going to write about it. I'm not even going to put it in the free library in my neighborhood to, like, ruin <laughs> someone else's day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're just going to let this 
This looks pleasant. <laughs> it has a flower on it. Let's check this out. Yeah. That's what I thought. And look what happened to me. Um, but I mean, I think, I think just within your critique of this book is a critique of this sort of acculturation into this weird sort of performative, um, different sense of morality. Can you just like tell us a little bit more about that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that <clears throat> I totally shared your sense. Like, so I had a New York magazine did a special on polyamory and I tweeted about it and people got very mad at my tweets about it and it went viral. And, you know, uh, my uh, editor at the Atlantic asked if I, you know, might be interested in writing about more. And I hadn't read more at that point. So I, you know, went to the books a million near me and purchased a copy very sheepishly. Um, books a million? <clears throat> yeah. What is that? In Northeast. It's like a horrible. Uh, no, I mean, I, I just didn't know it of, still existed. Yeah, Barnes and Noble. Oh, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I expected kind of like you that like, I wasn't going to agree with this book. Um, but I thought it would be fun and like salacious, you know? Um, and what shocked me about it is it's depressing. It's not fun at all. It's not even like, you know, the cover and everything and all the coverage is like, oh, this is a steamy tale. It's no more salacious than your average HBO drama. Um, first of all, <laughs> and second of all, it's, it's just really dismally depressing. I mean, it's a it's story a huge of this bummer. woman. Huge bummer. So she basically gets, um, and I want to be careful to, uh, you know, I don't know what her and her husband's like actual relationship like, but in the story um, or in the memoir, as it's described, it seems like her husband basically like tricks her into being an open marriage where she's like, this guy shows interest in her. And then the husband is like, you should sleep with him. I'd be super into that. And she's kind of like, I don't know. And then he keeps obsessing over it and bringing it up, bringing it up. Finally, she sleeps with him. And he's like, okay, sweet. So I'm going to start sleeping with my ex-girlfriend now. I hope that's okay. And she's like, what? And he's like, well, you like slept with this guy. And so she basically gets guilted into opening their marriage. And it's really clear like this was his plan all along. You know, I think like, I mean, I find it impossible to believe this guy hasn't been having affairs and just got like sick of hiding it and wanted to like, you know, bring it on the up and up. Um, but that's basically how the, you know, it unfolds. And it's just a string of horrible encounters she has with men. She's crying constantly. Multiple times she tells her therapist, her husband, everyone under the sun that she wants to leave the open marriage. Her she her mom was literally in, in, in an open marriage and in a cult, like a literal, a cult, literal cult that she indoctrinated the kid into, Molly, as a 10-year-old. So the woman writing this memoir is literally a cult survivor. Um, her mom was in an open marriage. Then she herself ends up in an open marriage, which throughout the book, she tacitly compares to the cult where she's like, it's kind of funny that my mom was in this cult. And, you know, because of this person, she was in an open marriage with and I'm in this weird situation. Isn't that strange? You know, but we're learning. Um, we're learning from we're it. learning and we're growing. Yeah. And that was kind of my thing. Like, I think it's, you know, um, it's this cultural document of the way that our obsession with personal growth or what I called in the article, like therapeutic libertarianism right? The idea that we need to deregulate our desires, treat ourselves like little startups and constantly be about growth, 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 right? And the only good thing we can achieve is like personal growth on our journey of spiritual enlightenment and that she has through, you know, sleeping with a bunch of guys. Um, but, you know, I think my, I, I was just, you know, it's dispiriting that the media covered it the way that they did because it's, I, I, I found her to be wretched. I totally agree. But I also felt really bad for her and I felt really bad that this book felt to me like a cry for help and it felt like no one listened and instead they just like sold it as this tale of girl boss empowerment when it was in fact a really kind of tragic story 
You may- yeah, to be clear, to be clear, like when I said wretched, I meant in a sort of like she seemed afflicted. Yeah, way. like yeah, she was totally. she was not having a good time. And exactly as you were describing, it did seem like she was fed this this story about how, oh, well, like the progressive thing to do is assume that actually people in sort of a, frankly, functional, closed, normal, heterosexual marriage have it much worse than I do. And in fact, I am lucky to be able to give in to my husband's whims of imagining me sleeping with other men, despite the fact that I don't want to. And it's just like this, this different moral logic, where instead of, I don't know, being asked to just like, I don't know, be excited to have a job in academia or like yeah, yeah. be faithful to your to your family. Like you in fact must do the opposite thing to be a good It's a counterintuitive sort of, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Progressive, and, park slope, whatever she claims to be. And you say something really interesting, Tyler, like along the lines of the kind of um the narcissism of endless growth. And you compare human beings, at least in this kind of mindset to startups, that each of us now in a certain kind of elite liberal setting, it's about like, we are projects, we are companies. And what is the job of being a CEO of a company? It's to have endless growth. You're always searching for something more. And I had never thought of it in quite that way. I think it makes a lot of sense. And it fits in also to the kind of neoliberal marketization of the self that we are not only are we CEOs of our lives, we're also consumers of any, like an endless number of things that are, that are like provided or pushed onto us. And this kind of way of thinking has spread and polyamory, I think, and I suppose you guys think as well is a reflection of that shift And I'm curious, so, you know, part of what we do at Wisdom of Crowds is that we try to understand why people believe what they believe and why bad ideas, bad in scare quotes, but in this case, I think it is actually bad, where bad ideas come from. Because it seems probably obvious to us and perhaps to a lot of listeners that treating your own life like it's a company or a startup is probably not the best thing. But somehow a lot of people have persuaded themselves that this is the way to go. What's your take on where, like, why are people doing something that seems very obviously not to be a good idea? Yeah, I think, you know, I tend to think we're in the middle of a what I refer to as often a new, new age movement where, you know, the kind of alternative lifestyles, the mysticism, the spiritualism that we saw in the 1970s is returning. And I think it's returning for similar reasons that it first appeared in the 1970s, right? So in the 1960s, you have this decade of sort of cultural change, revolution, and real optimism that like we can make a better and different world, right? Um, And that we can end the Vietnam War and all of these great things can happen if we just, you know, make changes. And then that gets stashed against the rocks in the 70s, changes don't come to pass. The war doesn't end. We have, you know, a worsening economy. Um, And people turn inward, right? Because we just spent a decade in the 60s trying to surmount these outward obstacles. We couldn't. And so if you can't fix those, you turn inward to the self, right? And if society can't be a project that we're going to improve, then the self can be. And I understand our moment really similarly. I mean, we had, you know, eight years of Obama and technocracy and that hope and optimism was going to seize the day and the experts were in charge, right? 
that didn't really work out. We both got Trump, then we got COVID, which was largely mismanaged in various ways. And the experts, you know, handled that in ways that were, you know, conflicting and confusing. And I think people are, you know, turning away from these outward problems back inward to the self is like, I can't, you know, the experts are, you know, in charge, but now we have two 80 year old people running for president. And, you know, nothing feels like in the outer world is is going the way it's supposed to climate change is a mess. We have all of these problems domestically and globally. So I'm going to turn inward to the self. Um, and that's how I understand polyamory. It's also how I understand, you know, um, circle back to the like the race and the HR and the DEI question. That's how I understand anti-racism is a new age movement, right? It's about purifying the self. I have this badness in me, which is internal r- racism, implicit bias. I need to work on myself, right? We talk about doing the work. So I need to do mm-hmm. the work to purify myself. And, and that's what a lot of this stuff is about. It's in individual self-improvement. I mean, people pay lip service to racial capitalism, but it's very clear that like, you know, DEI and anti-racism aren't really about combating capitalism. They're about our individual mental attitudes and, you know, mm. um, making sure we we get them into shape. So, so, so yeah, so, I mean, I so, see so, this all as, yeah. So since you just oh. said, Christine, is one thing on the self before I forget, because it's, it's sort of a digression, then we can kind of get back to normal. Uh, you kept on saying the self, and, you know, for better or worse, it made me think of the self-immolation of Aaron mm-hmm. Bushnell. Yeah. And I'm actually working. Wow. Yeah, I mean, not to kind of take it too dark, but that I, even like the phrase self-immolation, like I, it, yeah. it's a very interesting way of of putting it. And I'm curious, where would you put, and just so for people who aren't aware, um, you know, so, uh, an Air Force, active duty Air Force um a uh, member uh, lit himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., and he died from his wounds um, later that day. And um, it's been a big topic of debate um, and very charged debate online about how to perceive his act. I mean, was it an act of, you know, heroism or courage or was he crazy and specifically mentally ill? And how do we treat this? And where would you put self-immolation in this kind of broader categorization? Because in a sense, it is turning inward. Mm -hmm. Um, But in another way, it's very much turning outward. I don't know if you have reflections on that. You also said something interesting on Twitter about the immolation, is that you criticized people um, like liberals for not being able to imagine a world where someone would sacrifice their life for a quote-unquote distant cause like liberals don't think of sacrifice in that way anymore yeah absolutely oh go ahead christine oh well i was just gonna say but aren't aren't liberals actually saying that that's what he did and are kind of applauding him no for that's that, leftist actually. those are like far left people i don't oh, i don't yeah, think yeah. i don't think are you talking like about classical lib- yeah, yeah mm-hmm. i'm exactly. talking about like center centrist like mainstream like msnbc people. normie liberals yeah <laughs> normies, ah, <okay>. normies. <laughs> normies, yeah, normies versus liberals good yeah. good okay carry on <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, you know, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. I'm, I'm uh, writing a thing on at the moment. And I, I you know. Well, me too. I was I was really <laughs> frustrated by uh, just the response, like the, that we should understand this through the lens of mental health. Um, 
the Jay Caspian Kang made a great point, which is that in 2011, Obama, um, when the guy, there was a guy who kicked off the Arab Spring, uh, Mohammed uh, Bouzazi, his name yeah. was, yeah, Bouzazi, who um, also self-immolated and that, you know, led to a chain of events which led to the pro-democracy Arab Spring. And Obama gave a speech praising him and comparing him literally to Rosa Parks and the, the people who carried out the Boston Tea Party, right? Um, there was no talk of his mental health. He was positioned as this great advocate for democracy. And however you feel about Israel-Palestine, what I found really galling about this was that um, the default assumption, because it was like this instance was less politically convenient, um, the default assumption was that like, oh, well, he's mentally ill. We need to understand this is mental illness. And more information is going to come out about him. And we'll, maybe we'll get some answers about whether or not he had a history of mental illness. But to me, that's kind of neither here nor there. And the like, just the inability to imagine that like somebody might have just like come to a conclusion and carried out this act, which has a long political history, it should be noted. I mean, whether it's monks in the Vietnam War, whether it's Arab Spring, like there's a long history of this. Um, and to just immediately medicalize it and pathologize it, I found really troubling. And that's not to say that I think um, self-immolation is an effective form of protest or anything like that, or people should do it. I definitely don't. Um, but at the same time, like this is a human being exercising agency, and I found it really um, like more morally nihilistic to, um, you know, just evacuate him of any kind of choice or thought in the matter, you know, but in terms of the point about like inwardness versus outwardness, I mean, I think um, the way I think about something like that is like a sense of despair. And I don't mean despair in a negative way, but like uh, that persuasion is no longer possible, that like rational discourse can't like move the needle in a particular kind of way. And that out of options, this is the the option he exercised, right? Um, and so, you know, I do see it as a um, very much actually like the 1960s to the 1970s, that pivot we were just talking about. I, I do see it as the sense of like the external world feels unmovable. All that I have control over is the self and I'm going to exercise my, I'm going to demonstrate that in this particular, um, particularly public, spectacular and kind of horrifying fashion. Well, so in, in some sense, though, it's it's actually a little bit, maybe it's a little bit in between the inward and outward facing. Totally. So yeah. I, I noticed that in, I mean, in your piece about uh, the polyamory book, you really critique this idea of, you know, self-fulfillment and like trying to seek one's own authenticity personally, like spending all this time looking into yourself to to make yourself more yourself in the service of yourself. And in some sense, um, this guy... You know, it it is literally self-immolation. I mean, it was an action he took as an expression of his own will, but it was for a cause outside of himself. Absolutely. Um, even if it was an expression of futility or an expression of, you know, I don't think that society is going to change or politics will do anything of it, so I have to take it into my own hands in this kind of futile way. But at least it was in service of something else absolutely however poorly done and i feel like that's that is actually comparatively rare um in this moment i mean when you talk about or when we're thinking about people who are like oh i'm going to experiment with polyamory or various other lifestyle situations it's not because i want to make the world better necessarily it's because like i want to feel more myself like i yeah. want to develop my internal habitat more I, and you talk about this in your piece, and this is like a running theme in, in the book um, more. And I think the New Yorker review of the book actually picked up on this. Totally. Instead of 
finding some way to be of service to others. Like she, she's really kind of running through all of these often poorer, younger, totally. more and being really sneering about their like apartments and stuff. Yeah, yeah. really mean. These peasants, she's using yeah. them in in service of her own self fulfillment. And I mean, I think that's something that you you critique in a number of the pieces that you've written for the the Atlantic, and also in in your tweets. I guess this this attitude of just just the personal matters, not even yeah. the political, just the personal. Yeah, I mean, I really, I, I don't think the personal is political. I think the idea that the personal is the political is one of the like great mental deformations of the last century that has <laughs> made everything much worse, right? Like, I think politics are political, and I think your like inward self improvement and your like worrying about your like personal life and your sort of individual your internal habitat, as you uh, put it, uh, that's great, a great phrase. Yeah, I, I just I don't, and I don't care about polyamory itself. I mean, this was something I was at pains to point out in the. Piece and that I don't think a lot of people believed me. People were still very, very mad. But I don't I, believe I truly... you. <laughs> I'm not. Are interested you a secret in polyamorous? Are you? Are you sure? <laughs> well, I mean, that is not the I think impression. It's just a cheater, actually. Yeah, a yeah, secret yeah. polyamorous right. is just someone who's uh, There were so many takes too, where people were like, "Poly," they're like, they liked my piece, but they're like, "Yeah, polyamory has ruined cheating," and I was like, "That that was not my point here in this piece." Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, I I really don't care about what how people want to organize their romantic lives. But what I resent is the notion that. A Park Slope mom in her polycule is like doing politics. It's absolutely ludicrous. You know, um, I find it totally galling and, and offensive. Um, but yeah, I just I don't think the personal is political. I don't think self-actualization is like the ultimate good. I think it's like, you know, good to know who you are and try to work on yourself or whatever. But um, to elevate that as the like ultimate moral good, which a lot of people seem to in our society increasingly seems to revolve around that idea um, is. Yeah, I, I think it's a dead end. And you so pop quiz, what do you think is the ultimate moral good then? Yeah, if not the self, yeah, I mean, I think or self improvement, you know, one thing would be like being able to cultivate communities where people live with dignity and that have a fair shot to have a good life in whatever way a good life means to them, you know. And so, when I see you know, new every magazine under the sun in New York City running all of these pieces about either Molly wrote in winter this wealthy Brooklynite or you know New York Magazine did a whole special issue on like a how-to guide for polyamory with like a bunch of like rich New York polyamorists you know I just I find it extremely offensive at a moment when so many people can't afford to get married they can't afford to have children they're delaying having children because their jobs are so insecure you know they can't afford daycare they can't afford child care um, and so to you know pretend that whatever is happening in Brooklyn Heights is liberatory um, when, you know, just something as simple as getting married and having kids is so unaffordable for so many people. Um, I find it troubling. And so, you know, I'm a, a kind of class first leftist. Um, and so I, yeah, I think uh, kind of anything that distracts from helping people live a more dignified life in which they have security um, and they can pursue the things that are meaningful to them and have a fair shake. I, I, I tend to think it's, you know, not really politics. So this, what you're saying reminds me of um, a phrase that's been circulating in the discourse. I guess it's it's really come to it. It's been furthered the most by Rob Henderson, mm -hmm. um, who just came out with this book, Troubled, uh, 
and it's his own memoir. There is not any polyamory in it. Sorry, guys. Hmm. Um, but I was going to read it. Much... I have a review copy, but if there's no polyamory, I'm not going to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, throw it out the window. Put yeah. it Put it in the free library. That would <laughs> Exactly. There you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but he has this concept um, of luxury beliefs, uh, this idea that elites who are actually pretty stable and pretty pretty privileged by any standard, um, yeah, are able to hold these beliefs or these positions or these lifestyles that are not good for most people and probably aren't even that good for them, um, but they aren't harmed by it because they have all these other things. And yet those are the beliefs that trickle down to people who may not actually be able to afford those things, Um, whether it's getting rid of marriage and in favor of your polycule or I don't know, I mean, even just like the over-focus on sort of racial justice and attending DEI forums in, I guess, instead of just hiring people for jobs, regardless of their race. I mean, does that, am I making this connection right? Like, does this sound yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think luxury beliefs that I think Rob Henderson's phrase is very spot on. And I think it's shot through all of progressive discourse and is at the heart of a lot of the problems. I mean, I always joke about anti-racism, right? That where they, they, people always say that like, it's, you know, just because you have a black friend um, doesn't mean you can't be a racist. Uh, But like the flip side of that is like, you can have no black friends, but also be an anti-racist, right? And like, that's like (laughs) how I feel about a lot of progressives is that like, they put their kids in schools where they would never have to interact with like people of color and they like probably cross the street when they see one. And yet at the same time, they like, you know, in the abstract, right, they hold all these good and decent beliefs about, you know, progressivism and liberalism and multiculturalism and so on and so forth. Um, but I mean, yeah, luxury beliefs are everywhere. I mean, I think of the reception to, I'm going to forget her name, but the economist who wrote um, that book about two parent households and the advantages. Melissa that Carney. Two, yep. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the like anger on the left, and I'm very far to the left, and the anger on the left blew my mind. I mean, for the first 10 years of my life, I was raised by a single mother. Our lives, both of them got immeasurably better when she got married um and like and and and, you know i think most single parents that you encounter would say something like that and then you have these people that are in you know make plenty of money and are college educated and have stable you know marriages and relationships and families and blah 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 and we're like well you know like i don't think there's anything inherently better about a two-parent household versus a one-parent household and it's like well that's like very easy for you to say um from your kind of gilded platform but like the the numbers don't necessarily bear that out Um, and so yeah I think um, and I mean just in general like the elites are more likely to go to church they're more likely to be married they're more likely to have children right and they're doing all of these things um, and because they confer some kind of advantage and yet they're like but anything is fine right like whatever you like is okay there's no right way or wrong way it just happens to be that the way I do it seems very conducive to like you know being financially stable and having a successful life or whatever right for for me but I wouldn't impose that on you, you know. Yeah, I don't know. So, so I wanted to see if I could maybe steel man the po- the pro polyamory position, but I sort of gave up on that in my head. I won't be able to do it, <laughs> and there's no reason I should have to do that. Um, I I do want to. I think there is a kind of there is something philosophically interesting about the polyamorous lifestyle. So, in in my own column on on polyamory for the for the post. Uh, which we can also link to. I I did read some parts of the ethical slut, which is mm-hmm. oh, sometimes shit. considered the poly bible. Um, yes, 
And here's a quote that stood out to me. So, okay, here we go. The the authors, it's co-authored. So the authors say, quote, sluts share their six. <laughs> okay, let's sluts share their se- sexuality the way philanthropists share their money because they have a lot of it to share because it makes them mm. happy to share it because sharing makes the world a better place. I don't know if I would call that the mission statement of the ethical slut, but I think it's one of one yeah. of the kind of underlying philosophical premises. And it's interesting to me that it gets at this idea that if love and sex are satisfying, why not have more of it? And I use the word, and I emphasize the word more here because that's also the title of the memoir that we've just been talking about, more. And I think that if you look at a lot of the writing, the pro-polyamory writing, there's always an emphasis on having more, which seems a little bit odd to me because I think that growing up um, or just like in normal conversation, we often hear the opposite. Less is more. Mm-hmm. Smaller is bigger. Wait, no, bigger. <laughs> Sorry, is that, I don't know that's relevant. <laughs> Small is beautiful. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, this bigger. idea that... You a less of a good thing can also be good, and sometimes less of a good thing is better. And but this brings me to a question about religion, and I'd be curious what Christine thinks about this as well. I I, I, I always push her on this because I feel like we have a lot of these converse lifestyle conversations, but we have a solution, and it seems to me that we're reinventing the wheel. Like religion addresses all of this. Religion is at least in part about constraining choice. Religion is about saying that, yes, less is more. You shouldn't do whatever you want. You shouldn't be yourself. Actually, and I I said this on Twitter yesterday, like be yourself is really bad advice for a lot of people. I know a lot of people where they should not be themselves. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And, and that's the whole problem. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like, and religion is very much about saying, at least the religions that I'm familiar with, Islam and Christianity, are about saying that um, you should do things that maybe you don't want to do, that you should do things that come from an external force. That, I mean, Islam means effectively submission or surrender. And that means about, like, that. that's a very powerful idea, which is like the opposite of seeking more for more's sake. And I'm just curious, I have no idea what your religious inclinations are, uh, Tyler, and it's nice that we can get to know each other on that level here. But... Um, I I I'd be curious like what if you're comfortable sharing what are your own sure. religious inclinations and do you think in some sense that part of this is part of this is a result of rapid secularization in America where people no longer have a religious framework that would help guide them on these questions of choice and autonomy Yeah. So in terms of my own sort of like religious background, I grew up Presbyterian. I'm not practicing, but I think my basic outlook on most things is probably you would describe as like ideologically Christian, you know, in the sense of like give to the poor and like, you know, the rich aren't going to have an easy time getting into heaven. The kind of like a Marxist version of Jesus is my version of Jesus. Um, But uh, yeah, you know, I think you're right about secularism. There's a great book um, by this kind of like 
yeah, centrist sociologist, but it's very good. Anthony Giddens, um, he wrote it in, I think, the 90s called My Modernity and Self-Identity. And one of the things is he, he said the challenge of modernity, right, is that like before modernity, you just had answers supplied to life's biggest questions for you, like who should you marry or like what kind of person you should marry and what should you do and how should you live and etc. cetera. Um, and what happens with secularism is all these things that used to not be choices, right, things we didn't have to think about um, become choices. And so whereas the things we had choices over was previously like a pretty restricted domain of things. Now we have choice over just about everything. And he says that promotes anxiety, right? Like the mm. idea that like I have to choose every single aspect of, of my life. And those choices are not just um, not only impact me, but they're a reflection of who I am, right? Like that's part mm -hmm. of it. Like my choices make up me. So who I choose to marry, that's a reflection of who I am. What I do for work, that's a reflection of who I am, right? And so the stakes, not only um, are, do we not inherit the right choices anymore, or the, like the, you know, the choices that we pursue in a given culture, we don't inherit those. Those are up to us. But the stakes are ratcheted up because not only can we choose whatever we want, the choices reflect to other people like our, our innermost being, or that's how we're predisposed to think about it, you know? Um, and I think that's why so many people are horribly anxious and neurotic and like, you know, have um, deep distress around these questions about how should I live and, you know, how should I arrange my life and what should I do? And that's why people, when their job doesn't go well, it like hits them personally. I think we're in a previous era, people were like, my job sucks and like, I don't <laughs> like work making widgets at the factory or whatever. But it's not like my job job sucking isn't a reflection of who I am as a person. And now we very much like think that way, you know? Um, so I, I absolutely think these things are downstream from secularism. I think we need new kinds of norms. We live in a secular democracy that's not changing, and I don't think it should. Um, but I think we need to regrow comfortable with the idea of norms and authority, you know, and authority not mm -hmm. in the like authoritarian sense, but in the sense that there are like some basic things we can agree on as a society that make up a good life. Maybe you don't have to think about them so hard some norms are actually fine you know um, yeah but yeah no that's hmm. that's actually one of one of my major interests and theories too this question of normlessness and confusion i mean the piece that i wrote about men was basically about yeah. that how in the absence of norms everyone is just like lost and confused and they feel bad about themselves similarly with sexuality in the absence of norms about what do you do with a partner? How long do you keep them around? Do you get married? Are you just hanging out? What do you call this? Everyone just feels really, really stressed out. Yeah. But I mean, to tie this kind of back to the polyamory thing, I guess a little bit, it does seem that there is, there is a norm though, or a new-ish norm emerging that just maybe isn't it is a norm. It just actually maybe seems like it might be kind of worse than the old norms totally. <laughs> for a lot of people. And the new norm is that, well, you should be expansive. You should always be exploring. You should always be gaining more experiences. I mean, so you were quoting Dossie Easton, who with her co-author wrote The Ethical Slut, which I, alas, read too, shoddy. And this idea that, like, love is a free-flowing thing and we should, like, give it away. We should always be sharing it with people and exploring it more. Like, this this push outwards is seems to be the new norm. If the, if the previous norms were the norms that, like, religion might have given to us are, well, you might want to constrain yourself for various good reasons, whether it is the commands of a god or the responsibilities that you have to others, the new norm is actually never constrain yourself. 
in fact, it is weird, ugly, and old-fashioned to constrain yourself. So always, always be doing. So how do we reestablish and- these norms then? So if that is like, it sounds like to various degrees, we think that would be a good thing. What would the, first of all, what would those norms be that we would focus on to reestablish? But also, is it possible to reestablish those norms in the absence of religious belief or participation? Because part of the challenge here is that even if we acknowledge that religion is good, it's hard to actually get people to believe in something that they don't currently believe in, especially if they live in urban elite centers where it's not cool to be religious. So it seems that we're at a sort of impasse. I'd be curious what both of you would say to that. And actually, one more thing on Mm. that ethical slut quote that I found interesting. I know, and listeners of this pod might also know, that Shadi and Demir especially seem to have a true hatred of the phrase doing the work, Mm. the idea of (laughs) doing the work. (laughs) Me too. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a really annoying phrase. But one of the things, um, actually, Shadi, can can you read that quote again? I know you have it written down. I don't have it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Um... In your best, in your your best polyamorous voice. Yes. Okay. The authors of the ethical slut note that quote, sluts share their sexuality the way philanthropists share their money because they have a lot of what? (laughs) Yeah, outwards they're sharing. Yeah, because they have a lot of it to share because it makes them happy to share it. And because sharing makes the world a better place. So there's a sense of like non-zero sumness. Like there's an unlimited amount of love that each of us has, which seems contrary to my experience or most experiences (laughs) of people I know. Like, is that, how is that even possible? Love seems finite to me. I I actually, I don't think that love is necessarily finite, but I do think that the amounts of attention and care that you can give kind of materially Mm. may be in some sense finite. And I was interested in this quote because it seems like a perfect example of like urging someone to do the work, but not actually doing any work. It's like, oh, if you want to make people happy in their relationships or in their lives, you could agitate for better working wages for childcare, for more leisure time, for like these material goods that you would have to sort of involve an entire society into that would actually take kind of real material responsibility. Or you could just like do the work by sharing your love with them through sex, by inviting them into your polycule or whatever. But like that's, that's not actually doing anything for anyone. That's not no one is waiting to survive on your leftover sex. Mm. <laughs> no, I think that's right. I think, I mean, from my point of view, I think one of our big political problems in the U.S., and I think this is true elsewhere, but like we're ideologically disordered and like our political camps don't make sense. Um, and so capitalism is a force that destroys norms and, you know, melts everything solid to air. And yet the conservatives are aligned with capitalism. Right. And meanwhile, we have the progressives who are like less enthusiastic about the neoliberal consensus. But weirdly, their politics and their culture looks exactly like it, like unlimited growth. There is no wrong answers. Deregulate your desires. Do whatever you want. Right. Um, And no one seems to have noticed that like 
all those tenants that we're told are progressivism are like perfectly aligned with a kind of like free market consensus and ways of thinking, which is that we are all atomized individuals pursuing growth. Um, and that's the ultimate good, right? And it just baffles me that no one seems to notice that like these two things seem to actually be mere images of one another. And that like a certain kind of progressivism seems to be actually the handmaiden of a certain kind of like market neoliberalism, you know? Um, and so I think until we begin to see that a little more clearly, we're going to have a really hard time getting out of this particular impasse, right? Because I really do think like, and you know, that's why progressivism is so ensconced among the elites who are benefiting so well from our current economic consensus, right? Um, they're not at odds with one another. They're, they're, you know, they mesh really quite nicely. How self-aware do you think these left-leaning elites are about not actually wanting to redistribute wealth. Because I think that if you ask them the question directly yeah. in Brooklyn, they'd say, of course, and they would express some awareness of class-based politics. But clearly, they don't live that way or act that way behaviorally in the real world. And I think there's a self-awareness issue here that I find really intriguing because I haven't read the memoir more, but um, my sense of the, based on the description and, and your writing, Tyler, is that there's a profound lack of self-awareness from the author. She's talking so about all these things, but she doesn't seem to be aware of the fact that it makes her look kind of bad. And I feel like there's a, like with a lot of, like elite liberals and anti-racism I think is a part of this there's something like when when this person was telling you oh my god you're black that's bad or it was a paraphrase but you <laughs> also no, that was but, the vibe yeah that was the vibe like, but I'm also, sorry it was the basically the vibe but you also mentioned in that in that same piece which we'll also link to about like being a black professor and how people perceive you I couldn't believe this is true, and I like part of me still doesn't believe it's true, and maybe I'm misremembering the exact anecdote. But basically, you were hanging out with a friend at a pool, and this friend. Oh, I wasn't at a pool. No, I was hanging out with a couple people, um, <laughs> some of whom were academics, and they're like, "Oh, like, I, like, like I, I didn't know, know one of them well." And I'm like, oh, like you it. should come over and hang out sometime and go swimming. And they're like, "Well, you know, I realized like swimming is a culturally specific thing." <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. Yeah, I was like, yeah. "What?" Uh, yeah, no. And, and it's like, but there is like this way that um, so much anti-racism like horseshoes back into racism. I wrote a thing this summer about um, anti-racist parenting guides. Um, and one of the most bananas things was there's this one of them, like one of the most best-selling ones, I'm forgetting the name, but there's like this whole chart of different colors. And it's like anti-racist parents teach their children to identify different shades of skin tone, right? So they're like, this is like sand clay red. This is like walnut this is like dirty pine cone like it's like it's insane it's like the only people that care this much about these like micro gradations of skin color are like crazy progressives and then also white supremacists you know mm. um but yeah I, I i do think like so much of this dovetails back into like things that are neither like progressive or anti-racist but why but where does this what? lack of self-awareness come from like how is it possible that people who are otherwise smart and intelligent are so unself-aware. I mean, what's your best mm -hmm. read on that? That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.